You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. Last week we started a series, a new series for the rest of the year uh, in the book of Genesis called God and Man. Let's everybody say God and Man. God and Man. God and Man. And uh, Genesis, the word Genesis just means uh, beginning. Uh, Genesis, as I continue to say, uh, me and Kyra talk about a lot, is kind of like this is us uh, origin story of all humanity. Uh, In the pages of Genesis, what you get is a before Jesus, before the temple system, before sin, before uh, even the Garden of Eden existed, uh, was Elohim, was God. And as you move the book from left to right, the pages go on in the story. Uh, what you see is the beginnings of everything. The first time that you see uh, relationship, the first time you see love, the first time you see betrayal, the first time you see sacrifice, the first time you see hate, the first time you see sin and bitterness, the first time you see these things, uh, we, we get an origin story, a picture of, uh, of not only who we are, but whose we are. And uh, as I spoke about last week in Genesis 1, we're reminded that uh, this Bible, the scriptures that we read, not the iPad, but... Uh, the scriptures that are on my notes this morning and the scriptures that are on your phone and in your paper copy of your Bible are, were not originally written in, in English. Uh, and they weren't originally written to us. Uh, originally, they were written for us through people, uh, through, uh, by way of the Holy Spirit. Um, all scriptures God breathed. Uh, all scriptures is, has been anointed and called out by God as part of the canon of our scripture, of our faith. Um, but it was written in letters and poems and prose and stories and, 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 um, and Proverbs. And, and so this, this book, as we read into it, uh, needs to be read in that way. It needs to ask the question, uh, what is the Bible saying? What does it mean? And what did it mean to the original audience? And then we can ask for ourselves, um, what does the Bible mean for me today? And so uh, today we're going to be in Genesis 2. You can turn there if you would like. We're going to read the first, I think it's 18 verses of uh, Genesis 2 together. And uh, this chapter in Genesis actually has a second creation story. It's really interesting. So uh, at the end of Genesis 1, there was a creation story that started with light and dark and ended with the creation of man, that man was created in God's image, that man and woman were created in his image, and in his image they were made. And there is this cosmic uh, storyline that we see God creating the big things of this world, the physical and the cosmic universe. But there's a second creation story that sometimes we don't really remember or recognize that is less cosmic and more intimate that gets down into the face-to-face, hand-to-hand, God forming the dust and breathing into the dust, uh, man. And there's a second account of creation that that is the same story with a different different slant, a different uh, perspective. And so I want to start us off this morning with just a quick video snippet uh, from the guys at uh, Bible Project, Tim Mackey and this other guy, John something, I can't remember. Uh, and as I said before, I highly recommend these videos. They're super cartoony, but the guy's got like PhDs in all these different languages and biblical history and, and is able to really, I think, simplify and create a language for us to understand on every book of the Bible, including major themes within the Bible. And so if you're a city group leader, as you go through different books, I would highly recommend looking at the one in any book that you're in, especially Genesis, Genesis 1 through 11, as I showed a bit of it last week. But this is a theme video focused on the image of God. Who is, who is man? That is, the image of God is, is equivalent of man. Who is man? And what is his purpose? What is he made for? Let's take a look at the first couple minutes of this video. So if you lived in ancient Bible times, 
Odds are you lived under the authority of a king. And many of these kings claimed that they were oh. gods, and they would even call themselves the image of God. Meaning they had authority to tell people what to do, order things to be made. Yeah, they got to define good and evil. And these kings would often make statues of themselves, which in Hebrew were called selim, often translated as idol or image. But for Israel... They didn't view their kings as the God. In fact, they were never supposed to even make images of God. It's exactly right. And that was really unique for that time and culture. This is rooted, first of all, in Israel's belief that you can't reduce the creator God down to any one thing in creation. But there's another reason. People aren't to make images of God because God has already made images of himself. When did he do that? Well, let's go to page one of the Bible. And the first person we meet there is God. He's the one with authority over all creation. He speaks and creation obeys. And he defines what is good and not good. In other words, he alone is king. But then surprisingly, as the pinnacle of all of God's creative work, he makes humans and he calls all of them the image of God. So he gives all humans the authority to rule. Exactly. That's what he goes on to say. He tells the humans to subdue the earth and to rule it. And so this task that once belonged only to elite kings is here in the Bible the task of every human being. This was a revolutionary statement in its day because all humans are being called to rule and to participate in the human project. So what does this mean? I mean, how are we all supposed to rule? So the picture we get in Genesis is gardening. Gardening? Yes. Gardening. So they rule the earth by cultivating it, by harnessing all of the earth's raw potential and then making something more and new out of it. So growing food for each other. Yes, but that also includes growing families then, which become neighborhoods. And then they create communities where people are going to work and take care of each other and build businesses and cities that will expand to new places and so on. So ruling is really the day-to-day -day acts of our work and creativity. Yes, we take the world somewhere. This is humanity's divine and sacred task. All right, yeah, pause. All right, this is video get you get you thinking, get you stirred, and, and and maybe reflecting a little bit about the creation of man and what is the purpose of man. Last week we talked about who is God and what is his purpose, and today we are focused on that second question: is who is man and what is he made for? Um, when I was when I was about thirteen years old, uh, my dad, uh, my brother, and my stepmom made a trip across the country, two thousand miles uh, across the country to see different sites that I'd never seen before. We went to Washington D.C. on the Fourth of July. We went to New York City. We went to Chicago. We saw this game and that game, uh, and we went um, to Nevada and Las Vegas and realized that most of America is not what you see on TV. Most of America is a scary wasteland in a desert. Uh, for those of you guys that haven't been out to, to the west of coyotes and, and whatnot. Um, but my favorite place that I, that I stopped along that, tra tra uh, that trail was uh, in Chicago. Um, we visited um, all the Nike towns in every single city that existed. Nike Town is just a store where they just sell Nike shoes, and they've got signed autograph, you know, sports paraphernalia and uh, basketball hoops and things like that. And so we were in Chicago, in Nike Town, on Michigan Avenue, which is the kind of the main strip there in Chicago, and all the different clothing shops and things and sights and sounds. I'm from South Bend, Indiana, so it's kind of a big occasion to go to a bigger, bigger city like Chicago. And so I'm, I'm standing there um, at, the, at the corner uh, at this hotel between you know, Michigan Avenue would be to my right and this other street down here where my hotel is. And I look up and across the street comes Scottie Pippen. So Scottie Pippen, if you guys know, is the power forward on the Chicago Bulls during the 90s. This is 1997 when I was 13 years old. So this is like Elvis entering the building. Scottie Pippen is crossing the street and he is a giant. I mean, um, 
some of us as guys have that pride nature in us that think maybe if I get into the NBA, I could like make a couple baskets. The answer is no, you can't. No, everyone on that court is a physical specimen three times better and bigger than you are. And so Scottie Pippen's across the street. He's the biggest man I've ever seen in my life. Um, I can't, I'm in paralysis. I can't move. My heart is beating 400 beats a minute and I just can't stop staring at him. I am like a teenage girl looking at Justin Bieber staring at Scottie Pippen. This is 1997. He is crossing the street like he owns the street because he does. Uh, He's got six boxes of Nike uh, shoes because he had just gotten out of the Nike town. They shut the whole thing down because he can just kind of go in there whenever he wants. And he's crossing the street to his Mercedes Benz, which is parked right in front of me. And I look down at the license plate and it just says Pip on it. (laughs) And my dad says to me, I kid you not. My dad says, do you want to talk to him? And I was like, I was like, no, dad, I I just, I just want to stand here and stare. And he was like, because if you do, I can ding his car and he will have to stop. (laughs) I was like, dad, that's the last thing that I want you to do. It's my Scottie Pippen moment. I know it's not Michael Jordan, but it's my Scottie Pippen moment. Like, I'm sure Chicago had a mayor. At some point, I was Mayor Daly. I remember back in history class, some mayor in Chicago. But like, Scottie Pippen in the 90s was like the king of Chicago. Like, Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan, Dennis Rodman back in the 90s, like, you know, the Beatles of Chicago, could do whatever they wanted to, say whatever they wanted to, be whatever they wanted to be, because they owned the place. And, and when he crossed the street, as you would imagine, seeing somebody like that. It's surreal to see. They just look so different. I mean, you've seen him on TV, but the perspective looks different and taller than you think. And you're like, I, this person is a cartoon character. This, it's a figment of my imagination. It's not a real person. Then the person is like flesh and blood. They walk across the street and you see them and the hearts turn, you know, all the heads turn towards them and everybody's heart beats faster and everyone doesn't, you know, acts differently. And there's this weight, this, this gravitas, there's this pull in the room. You know, when someone likes that, when someone of significance walks into the room, you know, all of the attention kind of gravitates towards that thing. And this, I think, is what God is getting at when he talks about the images of God. You see, as the, as, as the screen is talking about, the image of God, the, the Hebrew word was selim. And as the, as the video just really profoundly unpacks for us, that selim actually means icon or idol. Selim is, is just a word. It just means a statue. And it wasn't illegal to make statues. It wasn't unbiblical to create statues. The problem was, is when people made statues or idols of God trying to minimize him down to something smaller than he was, thereby misrepresenting him. And that's why one of the greatest commandments is do not make an image in my name. But what did the video also say and unpack for us is that the same word that we use for statue and selim is the same word that man uses for us, the images of God. Man and woman created in God's image, the image of God. He created them. We were always meant to be images of God. There is a, there is a hallowedness when, when we as Americans go to the, the, the site of the Twin Towers and look at the memorials of the 3,000 people that died there. There's, there's a hallowedness, right? There's a gravitas. There's a heaviness, a weight that goes in the stones, in the marble, in the, in the written writings and etches and the flowers that are there. They're just things, but they, they carry a hallowedness. If, if we go to um, uh, the Washington Monument, you know, the, the idea of the marble and the stuff that's all, it's, it's this really wonderful, you know, architecturally profound thing. But at the same time, it's not profound because of the marble. It's profound because of, of the Dr. King's speech that was given on the marble. Because those things are images of that. They're meant to represent and carry this kind of weight of glory for those things. 
the White House, if you were to walk around and you could imagine, like, this was the room, like, where this decision was made. This is where Lincoln sat, you know, when he wrote the, the Emancipation Proclamation. This is the room, the hallowed room where this glory was. And, and this is what C.S. Lewis describes, I think, accurately, more accurately sometimes than we remember about what it means to be a human, what it means to be a human race created in his image. This is what he says in his book, The Weight of Glory. He says, it is a serious thing to live in a society with possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature of which, if you saw now, you would be tempted to worship. What's he saying? He's saying that, that when Scottie Pippen crosses the street, he's telling a story of significance. And our human hearts who have made creation the creator and worship created things look to those Nike boxes and we think what? We think significance. We think authority. We think fame. We think success. We think greatness. We think glory. And, and those types of, of, of words, of superlatives, the weight that we feel of that glory is not ultimately supposed to be found in that ultimately in God, but God has created, as Psalm 8 said, and I read last week, has seated human beings just below angels, carrying either for evil or good a weight of glory wherever they go. C.S. Lewis says, you've never crossed an ordinary human being. You've never spoken to a boring person. You've never just walked into another normal Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday. No, all of creation is filled with his glory. And at the center of that are Selim, image bearers of God who bear, whether they want to or not, remember they do or not, act like they do or not, carry the weight of glory on their shoulders with every breath. There are no ordinary people, Lewis says. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, but their life is to ours the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. These are just some pictures to get us thinking. The first one is the picture of Joan of Arc. Uh, this statue uh, is in Portland, and it's actually defamed quite a bit. They'll take her sword out of her hand or throw you know, tomatoes at it or whatever. But there's this kind of glory or awe to it, a splendor that reminds us of a story from a, from a time ago. And, and it and it represents just a, a weight of glory. Here's another picture of, uh, I think it's one of the seven wonders of the world, the pyramids. I uh, have these sphinxes in front of it. Um, if you were in of ancient times and you didn't have a scientific uh, understanding or history or cultures or anthropology, if you were to walk up on a, on a structure like that, like what would, the, what would the weight that would fall on your, on your shoulders feel like? What, would you, what was the significance that you would see? How about the next one? Uh, in, our, in our culture, the, the monuments, right? The, the, the great Mount Rushmore uh, featuring our, our presence. This is, a, this is something that was funded by the government to remember the American story, that was to remember the glory of the past and, and to remember the meaning of what it, it means to be American. These are the, kinds of, uh, the, the kind of weight of glory, I believe, that God has, has called us to be as images of him, as, as more than statues of him, as image bearers of him. So this is where we are in Genesis chapter 2, and we go from cosmic to intimate. We go from zoom out to zoom in. The second account of creation uh, is meant to explain not just the science of creation, but the relationship in the community within, relation, within creation. So Genesis 2, and we'll start in verse 5. We'll go back to the segment on rest in a future message. But in verse 5 it says, When no bush or field 
was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. Listen, it says there was no man to work the ground. So uh, the Hebrew word we learned last week in Genesis 1 was tohu vavahu. It meant wild and waste. It meant without form, not evil, not necessarily twisted and dark, but just without uh, creation yet, without organization and pattern, the way that Genesis uh, says that the Ruah voice of God uh, expanded into the earth. And, and, and so that's, that's mirrored here. What's different about this uh, creation story here in Genesis 2 is we start to see um, God uh, as a visionary creator. So notice what he says in verse, uh, in verse 5, at the end of verse 5, he says, he sees that there's this dryness in the land, and we imagine that by contrast, he's thinking, I want to create the, the, the form and function out of what is uh, wild and waste. I want to create plants and vegetation. But then what does he say? He recognizes the problem. He recognizes the process to get to the vision that he wants. It's like an artist that sees a canvas and thinks, if I want to create a foreground, I'll have to create a background. I'll have to create a context for the thing that I want to create. And so we see God not just creating things, but envisioning his creation. We see a, a, a peeled back curtain of intimate understanding of how God is thinking about the canvas in front of him. And he's going, okay, I want to create these plants and animals, but I will need an image bearer. I will need a gardener. I will need somebody to care for and subdue and work the land. And so he says, I'm going to create man. And in the midst of going up the land and there was watering and the whole face of the ground, then the Lord formed the man out of the dust and the ground. He breathed into his nostrils the rule of God. So uh, in day six, animals and man were created back on the Genesis 1 creation account. And the ruah of God, the breath of God was everywhere creating form and function. But here we see a, a distinct and set apart nature of man that the, the ruah of God was not just around man, but it was breathed into the nostrils of man. And so as we, as we breathe in now and breathe out, even our anatomy and physiology is here to testify that our life is a gift and completely dependent on God. And, and that life is not life without God. And that he has, he has intimately woven himself intricately into who we are. We'll come back to that in a moment. In verse 8, it says, And the Lord God planted a garden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord made spring up every tree and, uh, that was pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we see again the cosmic God, the verb is always create. There is a very kind of dun, a dull instrument, a word that's just used to barah, to, to create something. He spoke it and he made it. But but in Genesis 2, you have a couple different verbs here. You have some nuances, some different uh, tools of creation. For example, he says he plants a garden, he puts a man, and he springs up a tree. So you see that God is not just a creator, but he's a designer. He's not a God of just the big, but the God of the small and the details. And he's intricately weaving things in order and form and function in the micro, not just the macro. And he's, he's, he's creating and designing something, this, this garden project. And he's going to call it Eden. So there's a whole chapter of whatever it is, 38 verses, that is just made up of the whole cosmos. And now he's, he's, he's honed in on just this one sophisticated, like one micro-lensed, uh, uh, zoomed-in approach of what creation is at the micro level. And, and he says he plants this garden, he puts a man, he springs up these trees that are not on accident. Both of them are very important, significant for all of the canon of Scripture. And, and, and he says, I'm going to call this place Eden. It is a delight to me. Eden means delight. 
So he creates an Eden and he puts a man inside of the Eden. And there's two trees there. And the first tree is called uh, the tree of life. And these are, these are metaphors. The biblical authors wrote these not just to be about you know, trees, although they could be physical trees. They represent more than just agriculture. And the first is, is the tree of life. And, and the tree of life, uh, that's a real thing. Uh, it exists in Proverbs. Uh, it exists in Revelation like it will be at the end of time when, when Jesus returns for the new creation to fully realize itself. But the, the tree of life was an option for man. Uh, and the tree of life is simply this, that life is a gift from God and that life apart from God is death. And life is a gift. Life is a choice. Not, life is not of man. Uh, God was created by man. He was started by man. He was not self, or excuse me, man was started by God. He was not self-started. But that gift of life was a continual choice. Do you want life or do you want death? This is what the tree of life represents. In Proverbs, uh, the tree of life uh, represents things like wisdom. It says that uh, a wise person will sit by the tree of life, or, or it means that uh, uh, the tree of life is healing. So it says um, later on in Revelation that the, um, that the fruit of the, of the tree of life, the leaves of the, of the tree of life are used for the healing of the nations. So this beautiful, optional gift is given in the Garden of Eden from the very beginning. This is life. You can choose to take it or not. There's a second tree that is not in any other place other than Genesis, 1 and, or Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, and that is the tree of the Garden of Good and Evil. I'll skip down to verse 16, and then we'll backtrack a little bit. But verse 16 says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the tree of the, any tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you also have a choice to make today if you're going to eat from this tree, but you should not eat it. Because if you eat it, you will surely die. Now we know that everything in the garden was created uh, for good. And everything in the garden was good. But the way that God told the humans to operate around the garden gave them an option for, for not good. And we know a little bit more, and we'll get into that later on, of how that works out philosophically in Genesis 3. But essentially what this means is this uh, tree of the garden of good and evil um, is, the, is the, di- the difference and the distinction between where they are, which is like God, and where they would be after they would taste of this fruit, which is to be God. So the Bible Project people talk about it this way, is that at the tree there's this choice, and the choice is, do I trust God's definition of good and evil, or do I seize autonomy for myself and make a definition of good and evil for myself? And that's the choice. That's the choice every day. That's the choice we have. The first choice is, do I trust God at his word? Do I believe that when God says something is good or God says something is evil, do I trust his definition of God good? Or do I seize my autonomy instead of being satisfied to be like God, to eat and take the fruit that I would be a God? That was the decision that was put in front of this in the serpent. It was said it was crafty. And obviously we'll have more time for this in Genesis 3. He twists the narrative and says, don't you know that if you eat this will be like God? And the answer is, yes, I already am like God. But he was half right in the sense that he was introducing man to the idea of not just being like God, but being God. And that is how we get into all the trouble that we will be in after Genesis 3. Verse 10, backing up. So then he says, there's a river that's flowing out of Eden to water the garden. And some of these are very historical rivers. You can go and find them geographically where this is. This is the, the Fertile Crescent, where a lot of different creation myths uh, actually happen as well. But the Fertile Crescent, and it says, there's divided between four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is one that flowed from the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone were there. The name of the second river is Gahan, 
It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush, and the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is Euphrates. The Lord took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. Now, all of those verses that go above verse 15 don't really mean anything to us other than the fact that we see some natural resources, minerals, and the beginning of civilization in them. But the meaning of those creations find their place in verse 15 where it says he put them in the garden to work it and keep it. Many scholars kind of found this out and dug it out uh, because work it and keep it were, were, uh, were masculine nouns and uh, the garden itself was a, was a feminine one, or masculine verbs and a feminine noun. And so they started to ask the question, they thought, where else did we see these verbs happen? And the next place that we see those two verbs happen, to work and to keep, those things exist in the book of Leviticus at the construction of the temple. And so what would happen is, is that um, in the book of Leviticus, past the garden of, of Eden, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when sin has taken its place, when, when, when man is escorted out of the garden of Eden, and then there's a separate space between God's space and man's space, that there had to be this temple creation where God's space and man's space could dwell together. Without a temple, without an offering, without a Levitical priesthood, there would have to be a separate space where there would be God over here and no man could enter it. And man would have to be over here separate from God and the tree of life. And God could not enter into man's space. Those two worlds, heaven and earth, were separate. But what we see in the verbs here to, to keep the garden and to work it is, is that um, the, 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 the law that was given to Leviticus sends a message to the Israelites. And the Israelites and the writers always knew that back in the Garden of Eden, what? That the Levitical system now that tries to create a temple to get to God where a space could happen, where God's space and man's space could be in the same space together, that space was the Garden of Eden at the very beginning of time. That the Garden of Eden was a space of uninterrupted identity, uninterrupted intimacy, and uninterrupted authority. And in the Garden of Eden, listen, in the Garden of Eden, there didn't need to be a temple because the garden was a temple. There was no disruption and disconnection between the kingdom of heaven from Genesis 1 that heaven was created and earth was created. It was in the same sentence because why? They were the same place. The whole thing was a temple. The whole thing was worship. The, the whole, all people were priests. You didn't have to have a special acumen or, 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 or background or religious context. No, all people were image bearers of God. And they were, they were like these sideways slanted facing mirrors where as priests, the Levitical system was that the, the priest's job is twofold. It's to represent man to God but also represent God to man. So if you were to look at a sideways facing mirror, if you were to look at this mirror that's going like this, you would be able to see this, the ceiling. And that's what the image bearer is. That's what it means to hold the kavod of God, the glory of God. That's the weightiness of man is that if they like it or not, know it or not, they carry and reflect God's image. And so, and so there's this slanted mirror. And so what they're doing is the mirror, it was representing horizontally all that God is to creation. God is, or man in this, in this sense is the middle management in which God is not micromanaging around him. His job was to represent God fully in the garden because the garden was a temple. And anything that God was would not be interrupted in being reflected off of the image bearer. 
And likewise, when it says, if we don't cry out in worship, that creation will have to do it instead because creation wasn't designed to cry out for worship. We cried out in worship on creation's behalf because we were priests and intercessors and we were representatives of creation to God and we would intercede and pray and praise thanks to the sunflowers and the roses and the donkeys and the, and the, and the stars and the, and the galaxies and the heaven. We were the ones that were responsible. We were the bridge between heaven and earth as man went so creation would go as well. Because we were the image bearers. We were the bridge. We were the, we were the intersection of heaven and on earth. And this is the way to glory. This is, I mean, God, he didn't have to in his sovereignty and trust his creation man, but he does. Every other, every other creation story, every other God, the whole story is God's need people to do their bidding. And so people are trying to get as far up the ladder as they can by the time they die to get to God. But from the very beginning of creation, the posture of Elohim God was not to to ask creation to come up and reach as, as high as it could to the stars to come and reach their God. He, he knelt down into the dust and he picked up the dust and he says, I'm, I'm not going to ask you to come up towards me. I'm coming down with you. And I am not, uh, I'm not or, ordaining a hierarchical system in which uh, you have to do a bunch of things to get to me. No, life and my presence is a gift. And as high up as a tree branch would be, you can pick the fruit any time that you want to have the tree of life. I have shared my responsibility and my glory with you. Not because I have to, because I'm a generous, sharing, sovereign king. And I've shared this responsibility and this risk with humanity. What would humans do? What would the image bearers do? Just a couple of thoughts here, and then we can make some application. The Garden of Eden project it was perfect, but it wasn't complete. We're not sure there weren't mosquitoes there. We're not sure there weren't possums there, which kind of is frustrating. No, like, the, you understand, the Garden of Eden was a prototype. It was the beginning of something going, something going somewhere. The rivers and the analogies, they flow out of the center of the garden because they suggest that creation would, would flow in the four directions, the north, south, east, and the west until the whole thing was a temple. We weren't passive onlookers made to just show up to an eternal worship service. We were here to carry the goodness and glory of God and represent him on the earth, to multiply his fruitfulness, to find things chaotic and breathe shalom life into him because we aren't just fans of God. No, we are like God. We are images of God. And like it or not, remember it or not, know it or not, we hold the weight of glory in our hands. We still hold, everyone you pass holds, there is no ordinary person and no ordinary Tuesday. We hold the weight of glory everywhere we go, breathing the pneuma breath of God in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out. A couple of observations. If the Garden of Eden project is a prototype that's gotten started for man to finish and the Garden of Eden was a temple, there wasn't need for temple because it was a temple. If the Garden of Eden is a temple, then, then heaven is not in an ongoing uninterrupted worship service. Like I know, I love Chris Tomlin. He might be playing for like an hour, but we're gonna do stuff up there. Like work is not a part of the fall. And, and we'll talk about that in a future message too. Number two, if the garden is a temple, we are not just observers, we are partners. A lot of times you say, especially in South, you have a personal relationship with Jesus. I think what Genesis 2 is asking us, what kind of relationship with Jesus do you have? Because the kind of relationship that he's trying to have, we'll get into this in Genesis 12, 
is a covenant. Covenant is 100-100. We shake hands. Covenant is not a contract. It is, it is based on the faithfulness and the character of those that are making that covenant. When, when God cuts his covenant with Abraham, he is introducing him the original intent. He's not changing the intent. He is continuing on with a different vision on the same mission. And, and he is saying, I'm partnering with you. I'm entrusting you are co-heir. I, I want to see my kingdom, my shalom, my garden to be in your uh, patio home. But if you're a husband, that's your choice to host my kingdom or not. If you're a wife, that's your choice to daily go to the tree of life or the tree of death or not. This is the kingdom of God. This is what he is inviting us to. So without Genesis 3, we already know how things are, end up. You know, I mean, we need to, you know, to, to look at this passage the right way. We have to look through the curse and then through the gospel. But you know, like in the last 100 years, we've killed more people, more image bearers of God, than all of the other compounded years up until this date. Like, are we getting better or worse? Are we good image bearers or not? Are we, are we kind rulers? Are we sons of men like Jesus was as a ruler? The meek, the peaceful, the peacemakers, the righteous. Or as in Daniel 7 says, in the spirit of Nebuchadnezzar, are we beasts that rule like the Gentiles do? This is the question that comes when we leave the garden and, and, and we carry this glory with us. We carry this divine image with us out of the garden, this power and authority without the tree of life. And we have this thing. And, and, and so 50% of humanity has been sexually abused, right? Was it 60% women and 40%? So half of the room in a room this size has been sexually abused. We, we did a, um, a reading one time uh, through our Grace Initiative, Godly Response to Abuse in Christian Environments, you know, for our children to, to try and create protocols to, to help because churches can be a place where, where that happens, just like every other place in society. And, and, and one of the things that you saw in there was, was the power and the authority of evil that could get opened up in the life of a child through the adult and through the leader in the room. God has got to entrust this weight. And, and, and nine times out of 10, you think, why does a kid, why does a kid go through something like that and never say a word? How could they go through their life in 10 and 20 and 30? How, how, does, a, how does a person, and, and every time undoubtedly, you know what it was? The kid would look to the adult and he would trust what the adult said as far as what is good and evil. He's not taking that power away. That's, 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 the, that's the creation, the problem that we live in. The Nazi army, right? At the Holocaust and the killing of all the Jews. What did every officer say when they were interviewed, you know, at the war crimes at the end of the time, in 45? Oh, that's what the boss told me to do. We have, we, we have a profound ability to say to ourselves, I will not be like my dad and make the mistakes of my father and then become a man, become a woman and repeat the same things that happened to us. And it influences history. There is no common Tuesday. Christian boredom is an oxymoron. Every moment has the weight of glory on it, whether we like it. Every cup of cold coffee, every cup of cold water, every cup of coffee, every tip that we give, every smile, every nod, every word, whether we like it or not, we are made in the image of God. And so therefore we carry the weight and the glory and the responsibility of God. Everywhere we go, this is the covenant relationship that he's, that he's asking of, of us. Let me move through a lot of theology here and then get to my point. When Jesus came, he came to bring the kingdom of God to earth. 
He walked, talked, spoke, and gave parables that clearly communicated. He was going to the White House of that day in Rome and telling them they were not king. And, and, and so he is not here to rescue us uh, from earth, and he's not here to beam us into heaven. No, he's here to return the kingdom of heaven in its fullness and its capacity, not by micromanaging uh, creation, but by restoring the image bearers that rule over it. He has not revoked our license for evil or for good. And so he's saying, the kingdom of heaven has come, all authority belongs to me, and you are going to extend my rule and reign, not by tanks, but by meekness. Not by lording over, but by serving. Not by fear, but by love. I come from a different kingdom. That was the whole discussion. Remember when Peter's like, no, son of man, you're supposed to come in right on a donkey and whoop out a can. And, and he's like, no, that's what Satan sounds like. That's not my kingdom. That's going to be weird when you get there. This whole thing is a temple now that I'm here. I'm the king. And I'm going to sit down on the Sermon on the Mount. Scripture says he opens up his mouth. And he begins the constitution of the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. What's he doing? He's taking his throne back. He's saying, I'm the king. And this is the authority. For a time, this is the authority that has lasted. But now, in the time that we live in, Jesus is king. And all other kingdoms that oppose his are in rebellion of him. And he's the king. John says that uh, when the word became flesh, I love the message, says he moved into the neighborhood. The word, the English word there is he dwelled among men. But the word dwell is actually the same word as temple. It is tabernacle. He tabernacled among men. He, he became the temple. And, and when he went into the temple that, that man had created, you know, to try to get God's space back into man's space and so forth, they created a temple over here. And he said, you know what? This temple, uh, I mean, you can call it a temple. <laughs> it's got the bricks and things, and it's like, you know, made the way that Solomon had arranged it all. But this temple, like, you call it, it's a den of robbers. This temple is nothing but corruption and greed and distortion. This temple is not where heaven invades earth. This temple is... Uh, this is where evil invades earth. So I'm going to tear it down and then I'm going to raise up in three days and make a new temple. And then in John 20, in the account of the gospel of John, after the resurrection, the first encounter with Jesus, I love this, Mary thought he was a gardener. It's pretty awesome. There's seven miracles in John with seven I am statements. They're all pointed towards Lazarus in which he is trying to through a vignette, you know, through that sermon there, seven days to create a new creation. So there's an old creation, took seven days, which God sat on his throne and rested. He was over it. It was disrupted by man. Authority was given to Satan. Man, instead of being over beast, submitted to animals and ruled like a beast instead of a man. God came back to be the son of man. He came back to be the image of God, Colossians says, the, the perfect representation of the new creation, the new Adam, and bring a new kingdom. And so he says, he says to his disciples, I have all authority. And this time he doesn't say go make disciples. And John, what he says is, and I breathe my pneuma spirit on you. He just breathed on them. It's kind of weird, Jesus. Why are you breathing on people? Have we seen him breathe on people before? Is it good news or bad news? He says, I breathe. And then he says, listen, this is crazy. He doesn't say anything. He says, uh, he says, anyone that you forgive will be forgiven and anyone you don't forgive won't be forgiven. Who's that? Is that, a, is that just a random, lame, you know, 
dumb, just a, you know, just a guy, just Joe, just random. No, that's an image bearer. What's he saying? You're a priest. You're a sideways facing mirror. Everything you do, whether you like it or not, know it or not, or want to or not, reflects God. And everything that is around you, you are, you are the inter, interceder. You are the interceptor and the merger of heaven and earth. Heaven and earth moves through you. You, you are the temple. You are, that's what, that's what Paul says, right? Is that in Pentecost happens, the fire falls, but each fire is not just one fire in the middle of a sacrament in the Levitical code. Each fire goes above the believers, which means that Jesus tore down the temple to put God in us. That God isn't in the Ark of the Covenant anymore. He's not in a box, that he lives in us. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that, that, that the temple of God, we are the temple of God. The temple of God is not a brick and mortar building. The temple of God is not a garden. The temple of God is a walking human homo sapien and carries the spirit of God with him or her wherever they go. There are no, no, no mere mortals, no mere humans. Peter says we are living stones. We are a priesthood of be, be, believers. That, that church and state weren't supposed to be separate in the Garden of Eden. That's where authority and intimacy happened at the same place in the temple, and the whole thing was a temple. This is my sermon and sentence today. In Jesus, all creation, the new creation, the one that he is breathing his spirit upon today, and the one that has breathed his Holy Spirit in every single born-again Christian, all of creation is a temple, and all humans that are in his image are his priests. Again, in Jesus, all creation, it's all a temple. All of creation is a temple. And every human being is designed and prototyped to be a gardener of glory in this world. Not to hurt, not to harm, not to rule like a beast, not to rule like the kingdom of the air, but to rule underneath the reign of Jesus, to rule as the meek rule, to rule as the persecuted rule, to rule as the martyrs rule, to rule as a servant rules, to rule as Jesus rules. We were designed to rule, and he has come to put the authority to rule in the kingdom of God today. Is that good news? Your car is a temple. Your office is a temple. Your home is a temple. We get caught up in the language, which is important. We, we define things like I'm going to church. And I know that we know that that's not really the case, but it just rolls off the tongue. But we can't forget in that. It's fine to say that, but we can't ever lose sight of the fact that anybody that comes to see you at 3.23 out in the afternoon has just come to the 3.23 service. I'll see you at the 3.23 service. I'll make sure the coffee's hot. He's come, like Phil has come to talk to you and you have the, sp- like, you have the spirit of the living God in you. There are no mere mortals and there's certainly no mere Christians. You are carrying the Ark of the Covenant inside of you. The temple was torn down so that you could be the temple. God came out of the box so that he could be in you. And so there are no mere mortals. There are no mere conversations. There are no mere coffees. Every moment is a moment weighted and steeped in his glory, whether we know it or not, like it or not, or want it or not. They came to church when they came to meet you. They, they came to be interceded. They came to be blessed. They came to be, to be reminded of something more. That's, that's what they came for. And so there is no such thing as I'm just a mom. Oh, I'm not a missionary. I'm just a mom. No, no, we are image bearers. We carry the weight of glory. Demons and angels and other uh, people, when, when, the, when the end of age and all things are revealed clearly and we can see without a fog in front of us, would be tempted to worship, is what C.S. Lewis is talking about, everyone in this room because of the weight of glory that's on their shoulders. There are no mere substitute teachers. 
There are no mere mechanics. There are no mere pastors or missionaries. Look, because the image of God is, is beyond the, the garden, beyond the curse. The image of God says to us that we are co-heirs with Christ and we are reigning today with him as, as evermore. And so this is, this is the question. This is an intentional question that I would ask us this morning. We divide the lines between sacred and secular often. I loved what Timothy said during worship. I don't know if you caught this, but a lot of times because we don't sometimes feel natural in, the, in our skin of being image bearers, we create new temples. And that new temple, Timothy was talking about, and I thought it was great, is like this new routine, this new regular thing that I do that one time got me connected to God and, and we, we create kind of a secular and sacred space and we create a new temple, a new place. And, and that's fine. There's great things. Like we talk about repeatable rhythms and that's an important thing to, to have certain ethos to, to our day, but always remembering that the temple, uh, the construct of the temple, the actual physical thing is not ultimately what represents God most in this world. It's you and I. This is the question that I would ask for us and a couple of scriptures that go down with it if you want to take the picture, maybe talk about it in group. And I'll invite the band to come forward too as we, as we transition. If the whole thing is a temple and the garden was meant to be the place where heaven and earth dwelled, where God tabernacled with his people, if God has not forfeited his plan, but instead put his spirit into this place and tether himself with humanity, neighboring with us, dwelling with us, moving into the neighborhood, if that is the case, then the whole thing is a garden. And we are all priests. Like it or not, know it or not, one or not. We are priests, living stones, temples of the living God, and there are no ordinary moments. If God dwells with us and we are the temple of God, how are we being called to work and keep the Garden of Eden around us? Not like the Nebuchadnezzars or the Caesars or the political powers of the day, but in the spirit of the Sermon on the Mount to do all of those things in Jesus' name, even and especially when it costs the most, to confront evil, to take the low seat, to serve. What does it mean to nurture for the flourishing of our families and for the flourishing of our neighbors and nations? What does it mean to to be a gardener, to kneel down the way that God did and, and breathe Holy Spirit life back into situations? To be a gardener the way that Jesus was at the end of John, to, to see life spring back up again, to see marriages that shouldn't work, work again, to see, to see students that are discouraged in school find hope again and find confidence again. That's, that's our job description as Imago Dei, as image bearers. What does it look like to take the most of every moment to know that the days are evil, but speak goodness, to be as wise as a dove, but as shrewd as a snake, and speak goodness and wholeness and help into that situation in Jesus' name? To, to bring and give without cost. What are some of these things? So here are some passages to think about. Do I, do I build as an image bearer my house on the rock? So the whole thing about being a trusted king, a trusted authority, lowercase king or queen, is to base my life on the word of God, to trust what he says, not to redefine good and evil for myself. That the posture of us as leaders, it says as husbands are the head of the household and women are the head of children, that there's a nourishing and a nurturing. Would you say that your leadership style, your influence, the way that you talk to people, is it kind and gentle? That's how gardeners work. That's how gardeners have to think. We're washing people in the word. Is this how we neighbor with people around us? Do we reign by serving? Do we serve with the heart of the king? And do we rule with the heart of a servant? 
That's what Bill Johnson says. Do we do we have this sense that we are we have come to serve the things that we are subduing? Subduing is, is not oppressing things and objectifying things. It is to serve and nurture. We want to see the flourishing of our neighborhoods and cities and, and children. Not not to get anything out of it, but just to give to be a servant. Am I a minister of reconciliation? Paul says. This this city this this time is more divided politically than ever. Do the words that come out of my mouth and do the the things that I type up on social media, did they reconcile? Is that my heart to reconcile? Because if you're a priest, that's your whole job. It's like, I want heaven down here. I want earth up there. I want heaven and earth to collide. Like, I am the instrument of reconciliation. Is this the way that we think? There's no mere mortal. Lastly, am I generous in secret the same way as I would be in public? Is it the secret place that we realize that sometimes the spotlight of heaven is less on the things that everybody sees and things that people don't see? God says, when I when I looked on that woman with the two coins and gave into that thing, like, that's where I saw faith. That's God's definition of right and wrong. Is that, is that where we trust that the, the, the change in history isn't going to happen from some big platform, but in that secret place? There's no mere mortal, there's no mere moment. Every moment as an image bearer is a kingdom moment to allow this temple to shine forth as he dwells with us. Would you stand with us um, as, as we pray and respond? So, uh, Jesus, I'll, I won't ask people to raise hands this morning, but, but Father, for anybody that feels distant and cold from you, God, God, that you remind, remind people in this room today that they are from somewhere and they are going somewhere. And they are less a child of their uh, circumstance or of their family tree and more a child of God. We thank you that heaven is our language, God, and heaven, King Jesus, is our government. God, we don't respond and react to the problems and circumstances around us. We don't respond to the image reflection of who you are, God. This life is too expensive, too costly, it costs you too much, and it's too worthy and weighty to treat it as casual, God. No, we honor you. God, in Jesus' name, we see our families nourish and flourish, our marriages get our first and our best because we want to nourish and flourish, we see our friends get our best because we want to nourish and flourish, we want to see the kingdom of God ripen because the Garden of Eden is always intended on and on. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.